7, and 10. To put it another way, chronologically speaking, the seven bold judgments in Revelation chapters 15 and 16 immediately precede the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. So follow along in your Bible as I read today's text. Revelation chapter 15, and we'll pick it up right with verse 1. John writes, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast in its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, golden bowls, filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The seven angels with the seven plagues. As we work our way verse by verse through Revelation 15, it seems that these eight verses can easily be outlined under six main points. The first of which is the sign in heaven. The sign. Look again at Revelation 15 verse 1. John writes, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now it's definitely not popular in many of today's pulpits to preach about end time judgments. No one wants to hear about or much less think about such terrible events as the book of Revelation describes. But ignoring them will not make them less severe and certainly it won't make them go away. The truth is that the love of God and the wrath of God must both be taught with equal emphasis. Why? Because both character traits, love and wrath, make up God's character and behavior, who he is and what he does. Yes, he is a God of love and grace, yet he is also a God of holiness and justice. In fact, if we have no confidence that God will deal justly with those who deserve his wrath, how can we be sure that he will deal justly with us? His judgments are not a function of his anger or impetuousness. Rather, they are an evidence of his holy justice. For all of recorded history, God has been stretching out his hand of grace and mercy to the human race with offers of compassion and forgiveness. Those who are judged with these severe judgments during the tribulation are judged because they failed to respond to his gospel of grace. Judgment is not a negative thing. It is a righteous thing. It is the right, fair, and just thing for God to do. Now verse 1 emphasizes that the seven bowls of God's judgment about to be poured out on the earth are the last 
plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. This this word last in the Greek, the word eschatos, is the word from which we get our English word eschatology, which means the study of the last things. And so these seven bowls are the last plagues. They are among the very last things that God has planned for planet earth. And they are the sign in heaven that we are getting to the very, very, very end of the story. Now that brings us to number two, the sea of glass. The sea of glass. In the first part of Revelation 15 and verse 2, John tells us, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Now, so got to get this picture. Standing beside what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire are those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And so it's clear that these people here are those who have become Christians during the tribulation and who were unwilling to bow down to the Antichrist. Their victory is in their resistance to the temptation to worship the beast in order to live. They refuse the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their right hand and being beheaded for their faith in Jesus. These martyrs are described by John as victorious for they are standing here in the very presence of God around his throne on the sea of glass. Which brings us to number three, and that is the song of Moses and the Lamb. The song. Let's read what John writes in Revelation, the end of verse 2 through verse 4 out loud together. Would you read this with me? They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the heavens. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now these saints that we're introduced to at the beginning of verse 2 are given harps by God. They're one of three groups of people who play in heaven's symphony. The first was the raptured saints in Revelation chapter 5. The second would be the 144,000 in Revelation 14. And now these martyred tribulation saints that are described here in chapter 15. And it seems that these tribulation saints are singing two different songs. For verse 3 literally reads, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The text indicates there's a clear distinction between these two songs. Now the song of Moses usually brings to mind the story of the Israelites after they had crossed the Red Sea. Exodus 15 verses 1 through 18 tells us they broke out in song praising God for his miraculous deliverance from the Egyptians. However, if you read the song of Moses in context, 
It seems to have very little that would fit the context of these martyred saints in heaven during the tribulation. So I'm of the opinion that it's another song of Moses that is referenced here. And that song is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses wrote that song right before the very end of his life. The words of Moses' song in Deuteronomy are words of retribution and judgment against the enemies of God. The words seem to easily fit the context for these martyr tribulation saints and what they would sing here in Revelation 15. They can see God in the seven bold judgments is about to unleash his final judgments upon his enemies on the earth and so they are singing this song of Moses that is consistent with their need for justice. I would just refer you to Deuteronomy 32 especially verses 39 through 43. Now the song of the Lamb is undoubtedly the words that are recorded at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4. And I see four very clear themes in this brief song about the Lamb, Jesus Christ. First of all, His works. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Secondly, His ways. Just and true are your ways, King of the nation. Third, His worth. For who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. And then finally, His worship. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So Jesus' works, ways, worth, and worship are found right here in this short song that these martyred tribulation saints sing as God prepares to pour out his final judgments upon the earth. It's the song of Moses and the Lamb. Third, fourth, let's look at the sanctuary. And it is opened. <laughs> the sanctuary is Open. John continues to describe his vision in verses 5 and 6. He says, After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Now the word temple here in verses 5 and 6 is the Greek word that we would probably most often translate sanctuary. Specifically, it is described by John as the tabernacle of the covenant law. Well, what he's seeing here is John is seeing the Holy of Holies or the most holy place in the heavenly temple. Now in the earthly temple or tabernacle, this was the place that was behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, symbolizing, of course, the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and only then after sacrifices and stipulations had been observed. But here in John's vision, the Holy of Holies was opened, and the seven angels are pictured coming out with the seven plagues, the final judgments of God upon the earth. This sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, was the place where judgment was dealt with under the law. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat, which was the covering of the ark. And God's justice against sin would be satisfied for yet another year. And so it's fitting, I think, that, that the angels dressed in clean shining linen should stream forth from the Holy of Holies, bearing the bowls of God's holy judgment upon sin. 
The judgment of God that he directs toward the earth at the end of the tribulation, while sobering in its implications, is no less than the judgment that God directed toward his own son to deal with our sin. If we could just grasp how God could be just and at the same time justifier, then we would understand how His holiness demands that He judge the sin of those on the earth who have rebelled against Him. Seeing the angels here come out of the Holy of Holies is the perfect way to illustrate that judgment flows from the holiness of God. The sanctuary is opened. Which brings us to number five. That is the seven bowls of wrath. The seven bowls of wrath. Let's look again at Revelation 15 verse 7. Then one of the living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now we first met these four living creatures back in Revelation 4 verses 6 through 8 when we read about them. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now undoubtedly, these are the same as the seraphs that Isaiah saw in his own vision of the throne room of God in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6. And it is these same living creatures, we're told, who announced, if you might remember, the four, first four of the seal judgments, which were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And now, here in Revelation 15, one of these four living creatures gives each of the seven angels golden bowls with the wrath of God. And when we get to our next lesson in Revelation 16, we're going to see these angels turn their bowls upside down and empty out these judgments upon the earth. The seven bowls of wrath. That brings us to our final point today, number 6, the smoke in the temple. The smoke in the temple. Let's read this very last verse of the chapter, Revelation 15 verse 8. Let's read it out loud together as we wrap up this chapter. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now maybe you might ask, why smoke? <laughs> well, smoke from the glory of God and from his power often accompanies God in his presence in the Bible. When God gave the law to Moses, Exodus 19.18 tells us, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. When Isaiah saw his vision of God in his temple, we're told in Isaiah 6 and verse 4 that the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. When Aaron 
And the subsequent high priest offered sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. We're told that the smoke of the incense would conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law, Leviticus 16.13, so that the high priest would not die in the presence of the glory and the power of God himself. Now the day will come when this smoke is no longer necessary and we will have in fact open access to the Holy of Holies and we will behold the glory and the power of God face to face. But until the seven plagues of the seven angels are completed until these final last bowls of God's judgment are poured out as we'll read about in our next lesson in Revelation 16. God will continue until that time to protect us from His glory and His power. The smoke in the temple. So there's the sign in heaven, the sea of glass, the song of Moses and the Lamb, the sanctuary is open, the seven bowls of wrath, and the smoke in the temple. That's the gist of Revelation chapter 15. And that sets us up, by the way, very well for Revelation 16 in our next lesson. As we wrap up today's study, I heard a corny story <laughs> that I think fits pretty well with today's sermon, so bear with me on this little story. Old Zeke and his family had a tradition of sitting around the grandfather clock on New Year's Eve to count the chimes as it struck 12 midnight and heralded the beginning of a new year. And as the story goes, this very past New Year's Eve, dad and mom and the kids and grandkids all gathered around the clock as it began to strike. And together, in unison, they counted one, two, Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and one of the kids screamed, It's later than it's ever been! <laughs> Now, whatever other lessons we may take home from our study of Revelation 15, certainly we must understand that it's later than it's ever been. In John's own words in verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. It is finished. It is the end of the story. Friends, it's later than has ever been. The Apostle Peter writes, I want to remind you that in the last days there will come scoffers who will do every wrong they can think of and laugh at the truth. <laughs> Go on. There will be, this will be their line of argument. So Jesus promised to come back, did he? Well, then where is he? He'll never come. <laughs> Why, as far back as anyone can remember, everything has remained exactly as it was since the first day of creation. And I just want to say to you, don't be a scoffer. Don't be fooled into thinking that because Jesus hasn't come yet, he must not be coming at all. 
Rather, it's because he hasn't come yet that it's all the more likely that he could come today. Amen. It's later than it's ever been. And the truth is, the only thing holding back the rapture of the church in the beginning of the tribulation is God's desire that more people be saved. Let's read 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 out loud together. Let's read this. God isn't late with His promise, as some measure lateness. He is restraining Himself on account of you, holding back the end because He doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Yes. And then Peter goes right on and continues, but when the day of God's judgment does come, it'll be unannounced, like a thief. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow. Do you see how essential it is to live a holy life? Daily expect the day of God, eager for its arrival, ready for the promised new heavens and the promised new earth, all landscaped with righteousness. Friends, it's later than it's ever been. Yes. The day of God's judgment is coming soon. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, listen, this is the hour to receive God's favor. Today is the day to be saved. Don't miss that. Listen. This is the hour. Today is the day. Won't you come to Christ before it is too late? It's as easy as ABC. A, acknowledge that you have sinned with a heart of repentance and that you need, desperately need, a Savior. B, believe that Jesus Christ is the only one and one and only way to heaven and put your faith and trust in Him for your salvation. And C, confess with your lips as well as with your life that Jesus is Lord and follow Him wholeheartedly and unashamedly. Now if you decide to make this life-changing commitment to Christ, and you're in attendance right here this morning at Springville Naz, I want to encourage you to take your bulletin flap, we call it a communication card, to fill it out and to check that box that says, I am interested in learning how to become a Christian. If you'll put that in one of the three offering baskets as you leave today, I promise you I will get a hold of you this week to talk with you about your relationship with Jesus. Because it's that important that we do this as soon as possible. If you're watching or listening to this sermon online and you decide to make this life-changing commitment to Christ, I want to encourage you to stop right now and to go to our website at springvillenaz.com. Click on the tab Contact and send me an email to let me know about your decision. And I promise that if you'll give me your email, I will email you back some information about what it means to walk in a daily journey with Jesus. It's later than it's ever been. A study in the book of Revelation. Today we've studied the seven angels with the seven plagues from Revelation chapter 15. Next up in this series, we're going to focus on Revelation 16 in a lesson that I've entitled, The Seven Bowls of God's Wrath. That's next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, such practical things. The reminder this morning that it's later than it's ever been is one that every one of us needs to heed. Sometimes, God, we just go through our lives day to day and we don't even stop to think 
that this could be the day. This could be the day that you come for your church. This could be the day that marks the beginning of the end. The tribulation. Lord, uh, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice right now that is not ready for that event to come, I pray that they would take seriously this call to salvation and that they would embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Lord of their lives before it's too late. So I lift that up to you, Lord, and ask that you bring salvation to those who so desperately need it today. And it's all because of God's amazing grace, as we sang earlier. That grace that you have given to us so that we might even know you. That we might be in relationship with you. You made it possible. It all happened through Jesus. And we praise Him. And we praise you today, O oh Father. In the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.